Anyway, if you've uh, ever had the unfortunate and painful experience of dealing with a person who thinks a lot more of him or herself than they should, you know, that kind of person that's arrogant and obnoxious, condescending with that, you know, I'm a little better than you or a lot better than you kind of attitude that they so often display, then I think that you'll enjoy this story that I heard recently. Apparently there was an executive who was a big shot in business, and he had to spend, <clears throat> he had to spend a couple of days in the hospital, and he was a royal pain to the nurses uh, because he bossed them around just like he bossed around his employees and everybody else in his life. And none of the hospital staff wanted anything to do with him. In fact, most of the nurses went running out of his room in tears after going through five or ten minutes with this guy. And the only one who could put up with him was the head nurse. And finally, she just had enough of him herself and what he had done to her staff that she decided that she was going to spend a little time with him and uh, went into his room and said, it's time to take your temperature. And he started complaining a little bit about it and finally he folded his arms and he laid back in bed and he opened his mouth and he opened his mouth and stuck out his tongue and she said, oh, no, I'm sorry. But for this reading, we can't do it orally. So if you won't mind, just kind of roll over. So he complained for another 10 minutes and finally he rolled over and uh, bared himself to the situation. After feeling the uh, thermometer inserted, the nurse said, oh, by the way, hold on for a second, don't move, I'll be right back. <clears throat> so she left the room, and uh, she happened to leave the door to his room wide open to the hallway. So as he was uh, in that particular vulnerable position, and as people were walking by, he can hear several snickers and people laughing and a group that had gathered outside of his room. And after about 10 to 15 minutes, the nurse never came back in yet. But his doctor did. And his doctor walked in and went over to him and said, what, what exactly is going on here? And the smart aleck turned to his doctor and said, what's the matter? You're a doctor. You should know. Haven't you ever seen anybody having their you know, temperature taken before? He said, well, yeah, I have, but never with an American flag. <laughs> Now, just to show you how my mind works, I was, I was reminded of that story as I was reading through James chapter 2. So, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2. You better hope you never find yourself in the hospital. <laughs> James chapter 2, starting with verse 1, we read these words. You know, it's interesting as we go through this in our own ongoing study of the book of James, we see in James chapter 2, starting with verse 1, we'll go through first, verse 13, we read these words. It says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? 
Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. It says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. In this passage, we get a more complete picture of how a Christian who is growing in Christ should relate to all kinds of people, especially those who are different. You know, the setting of this discussion is a sin that was frequently committed in the early church, and that's not surprising considering the fact that it was not only committed in the early church, but it has been committed ever since, both inside and outside of the church. The Bible calls this particular sin personal favoritism. If you notice in verse 1, he says, Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. As we learn from this passage, that as Christians wanting to be more like Jesus, we are to be what? Growing beyond personal favoritism. Now for many of us, we've not really become, we're not familiar with the term personal favoritism. So what I want to do is I want to define it or put it into terms that are more common today, terms that many of us will certainly recognize at first glance. And this whole idea of personal favoritism carries with it the idea that we find in our culture and in the world today, uh, basically three different ideas. The idea of racism, the idea of classism, and the idea of culturalism. And as you go through and we look at these things, it's important that we define each one so we have a better understanding that we are not to be those who commit the sin of partiality or personal favoritism, or in this particular case, those who commit the sin of racism, which is a prejudging against someone whose skin color is different from yours. There is also classism, which is a prejudging against a person whose economic status does not match yours. And there's culturalism, which is also a prejudging against someone whose way of life, whose manner of dress, or personal preferences are different from yours. You see, in this particular passage, and we're dealing with a very practical issue, obviously, and it's going to be one that's going to be highly uncomfortable for many of us, but yet we've got to preach the full counsel of the Word of God, and God's Word is very clear that we are not to be those who are guilty of committing such partiality or personal favoritism in any area of life, and as we look at this, we'll begin to understand what it is that's, that's going on. You see, the problem begins when we start making judgments about a person's worth based on such external criteria. Whether it's the color of their skin, the type of clothes that they wear, the money that they make, uh, the manner in which they, uh, they, they uh, dress themselves or conduct themselves, or anything else that would, from an external standpoint cause us to begin to judge them differently based on what we see. The problem begins there. The sin does not occur until we actually decide, because of what we see, how we will now treat that person or that group of people. You see, the problem is when we judge people from the external standpoints, the sin occurs when we then use that judgment value that we then assess and we begin to treat them in a certain way because of the external value judgment. 
So as we look at these, it's important that we recognize and understand that it's important that, you know, that, that we, well, you know, we're all different. We understand that. We recognize that. And there's nothing in the Word of God that says that we all have to be the same. We're to be united in mind and united in purpose as far as believers are concerned. But there's a huge difference between unity and uniformity. And nowhere in the Word of God is uniformity taught as being the preferred way of God. Unity is something different than uniformity. Uniformity, we get the word uniform, everybody dresses the same way, they act the same way. We see companies who have uniforms, we see people like United Postal Service or the, or the uh, you know, United States uh, 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 Postal Service or the mail, where everybody dresses a certain way to some degree, and those are uniforms. We see it in sports where, you know, certain teams wear certain uniforms. That's uniformity. But yet, God never pushes uniformity, but he does promote and encourage unity. And so we need to recognize that God allows for differences. There are going to be diverse differences, I mean drastic differences. When you look around at a group of people that God has brought together, even here as I speak, there is a, a tremendous amount of diversity. And there's nothing to say in the Word of God that we all have to like the same things and do the same things and hang out with the same people and all of those kind of things. But we need to be sensitive and recognize that there is a fine line that we've got to be careful that we do not cross and that crosses over into the, into the behavior that God calls sin. So as we look at this, we need to recognize that, you know, the sin of prejudice was prevalent in the first century because, first of all, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. They couldn't stand one another. They couldn't stand to be in the, in the presence of one another. They wouldn't be caught dead in the same room, yet alone walking down the same sidewalk, going toward the same place. They couldn't stand each other. There was also the class issue between the rich and the poor. And we find that that hasn't changed much over the centuries. Also, there was that of the free and the slave. Or as in our culture, the employer and the employee, management and the rank and file. We see these differences all throughout our society, and we need to recognize and understand that. And all of these problems that were going on in society were imported into the church when all of these groupings of people had come to a personal knowledge and relationship of Jesus Christ and had invited him into their life as individuals, having asked God to forgive them of their sin, all of a sudden you got Jew and you got Gentile, you got free and you've got slave, you've got rich and you've got poor, and they're all coming to the same assembly together, but they're bringing into that assembly with them all of the prejudices they had before coming to know Christ. And now this particular passage deals with that very issue. God's word cuts to the core of the problem without sugarcoating any of it, and I intend to do the same thing. Because we need to put it on the lowest shelf so that every one of us can grab hold of it and deal with it exactly as we should. And so as we're looking at this, we're going to take a look at this and we're going to break it down very simply into, first of all, we're going to call it as it is, and that's the sin of partiality or personal favoritism. It could be that of racism or classism or culturalism. But nonetheless, it's something that God says is right down here plainly in verse 1. My brethren, speaking to believers, do not hold your faith in our, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, with an attitude of partiality towards others, with a racist attitude, a classist attitude, an attitude of culturalism. Don't hold your faith in Christ with any of those things. We need to recognize it for what it is. And it's very clear, and I don't want you to miss it, but it's this. Faith in Jesus Christ 
and personal favoritism or partiality are not compatible. Faith in Jesus Christ and the sin of partiality are not compatible. So you need to ask yourself a question. Have you, as an individual, come to faith in Jesus Christ? And what that means simply is this. Have you come to the point in your personal life where you believe what the Bible says as far as you are concerned in the eyes of God that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? That there are none righteous, no, not one. On your best days, you don't have a chance to get into heaven. That you are a sinner before God. If you've come to that point of understanding that and the subsequent conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life saying, you know what, you're in deep trouble and if you don't repent or confess and agree with God of what he says is true of your life, that you are a sinner, and you don't repent from that sin and ask Jesus Christ to come into your life for the forgiveness of sin, God says that you are hopelessly lost for all of eternity. But if you have come to faith in Christ and believe what the Bible says, and you've invited Christ into your life for the forgiveness of your sin, then the Bible says this, that in your life and my life as a child of God, growing into a man or woman of God, being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. In my life, there is no room for the sin of partiality or personal favoritism or racism or classism or culturalism. We need to understand exactly what the Bible teaches in very plain and simple terms. There is no room for that. If you have answered yes, then prejudice and favoritism have no place in your life. But unfortunately, that sin crept into the early church and unfortunately, it also still exists among believers even to this day. So we need to recognize exactly what it is. And, the, and, and basically what God's going to do is paint a picture for us that all of us can understand. Number one, notice the situation in verse two. He said, he's going to illustrate so that we all understand. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes... And there also comes in to the assembly a poor man in dirty clothes. That's the situation. He takes it so that every one of us can understand. There are two people that are coming into this assembly. We need to recognize that the word assembly means ecclesia, or, or ecclesia in the Greek or assembly or uh, church is what the translation is. When somebody comes into the church, and the church in the Bible is not the building in, where, in which people meet. The church or the assembly is always the gathering together of people who have put their faith and trust in Christ for the purpose of worshiping God, praising Him with our lips and with our lives and with our offerings, who come together to pray, who come together to, who, to, come together to give, who come together to encourage one another, who come together to study the Word of God so that we know what is expected, us, as expected of us as people of God. The assembly is the gathering together. That's why in Hebrews we're told that we should, not, we should not forsake the assembling together as the habit of some. But we should gather together and encourage each other and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. That we are to assemble together. That, there is, that God is pleased by the assembly of His people. That God is pleased by the worship of His people. That God is pleased when we open the Word of God and it becomes central to what we're doing in the time in which we're here. And we study what God demands of our life. See, the assembly was just that, a group of people who came together, and in the midst of this assembly comes one person who is just looking dapper, man. I mean, is looking fine. He just steps off the pages of GQ or Ebony. I mean, the guy looks good. And he's all dressed up. And he had some place to go. Just like... 
just like some of you. And so that, the, the contrast is, and then here comes another guy. And it's obviously that the guy is poor because we're told that he is. And he comes in dirty clothes, which doesn't mean they're dirty because he hasn't washed them. That just means the quality is not the same quality as the next person. And so we've got this contrast that's taking place between these two people. And as we look at this, we realize that God is trying to make a very obvious point that there is one person who is looking really fine, and he's got gold on, and he's got fine-looking uh, linen on, and a suit that's tailored, and, and he just walked off the pages of a magazine. We've got another guy who just walked off the streets, and it's pretty obvious what the contrast is. Now, what's interesting about all of that is, is that these two men come from very different economic backgrounds, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. You know, what's exciting to me is I look around and begin to realize, you know what, the one of the most exciting things about the assembly of believers or the gathering together of believers, and some of you have probably seen it, you can see it in a group like this, you certainly see it when you go to your small groups and things like that, but there is nothing that excites me more than the diversity that we see in those who have come to faith in Christ. Because you know man could not have done this on his own. It is not a plan of man, but it is a work of God. And the Bible says that we are all trophies of his grace. Let's face it, when you look around here, some of you would scare each other if you just met each other on the street. And you probably wouldn't spend much time together. But you know what's exciting? We can all come together and lay aside all of those differences and have one thing in common, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. And that's an exciting thing. I love that about the diversity of the family of God. Now, obviously, there's a whole bunch of things that happen with diversity that cause a little bit of infighting and it cause you know, us to rub each other the wrong way. It's kind of like the porcupine family, you know? Uh, it's like the closer they get on a cold day, you know, they need, to, they need each other to warm each other up, but the closer that they get, they really start to irritate each other. But that's all right because that's the family of God. It's the trophy of the grace of God. And that's what's wonderful and exciting about it. So there's nothing wrong with the contrast that takes place. It's what happens next, which we find in the separation that takes place between these two people. The ushers get into the act, and notice what they do. In verse 3, it says, And you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, Oh, you go stand over there, or you just sit down here on the floor. You notice what he's saying here? The separation takes place. People get involved and they begin to assess certain judgments based on what we see. In our culture, we've gotten a lot more subtle than we used to be 50 years ago when we used to see a black person walk in a room and say, hey, colored man, get to the back of the room or go to the back of the bus. And I'm going to be blunt because we've had an opportunity to spend some time with people of various races and, and, I, and I enjoy and appreciate everything that I've learned from them. Because in the National Football League, 70% of those who participate are black-skinned people. And so as a result, about the same percentage of those who became friends of ours and spent time in our home and with our family are also black. And so we got to listen to some very heartbreaking stories and some enraging stories that we need to be aware of and that I will illustrate certain truth as we go through this together. But you see, we've become a lot more subtle in our culture as to how we discriminate against one another, but the discrimination still exists. And we need to recognize that for what it is. And what it is, very simply, it's nothing short of sin as far as God is concerned. The separation that takes place is sinful. You notice God does not accuse the rich person of evil motives in coming to the assembly all dressed up. 
Nowhere in the, the Word of God is he accused of anything as far as his motives are concerned. He comes and he's all dressed up. He's not there to flaunt his wealth. He's not there to say, well, look at me compared to you. He doesn't come with any of that, and God doesn't address any of that. That's not even what he wants to get across, because he doesn't question the motivation of the man who comes that's all dressed up, because he knows the man's heart. This man, as far as we know, could have been a man that says, you know what, I'm giving my best to the Lord, and I'm coming dressed up to praise him and honor him and worship him. And so that's why I'm coming all dressed up. And he doesn't even question the motivation of the one who comes in his ragged clothes, but he's making a point that he came with what he has, and God doesn't get hung up on the externals. The sin occurs when those who saw him and them from an external standpoint made an assessment or a judgment based on nothing more than a visual inspection that went beyond just the two of them. You look good, you don't. You get the good seat, you go to the back. You're white, you're black, you're Asian, you're Hispanic. Whatever it is, immediately that we see, we'll make our snap judgment based on that. And the sin occurs whenever we begin to act in a certain way because of nothing more than an external judgment that we just made. We look at that and begin to realize that that was the faulty value judgment that they made. And it's unfortunate because it's sin in the eyes of God. What's interesting as we consider this, that in this particular case, it was a sin based on classism or economics. The rich have clout and the poor are left out. And that's just the way it is. And I want to share something with you that makes what happened here really bad. In verse 4, notice what he says. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Among yourselves means as a group of believers, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And the reason that the whole assembly was guilty of what the ushers did in this particular case is because if that wasn't the common practice, then those ushers wouldn't have been ushering very long. But they allowed it to take place. The leadership of that assembly allowed that type of attitude to permeate the body of Christ. And so it was a reflection of those who were in leadership. And so often, the kind, so often that's really true, isn't it? Our racism and classism and culturalism is often a reflection of the leadership, whether it's a leadership of a church or a community, whether it's a leadership in a home. How does a small child understand what racism is unless that child is taught by his or her parents or someone in authority in his life or her life? It all is a reflection of what's on top. He says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with what? With evil motives. What was their motive? God doesn't even tell us their motive. But it's pretty obvious what their motive was. What was their motive? You must have money. We can use you around here. You don't have any money. You're just going to drain all the assets that we have. So if we can discourage you, maybe you'll go away. Go somewhere else. But you, we want you here. Because we got a building program about ready to start. And you're looking fine. And if that's what a reflection of what you're all about, we want you here. You're one of us. Interesting, isn't it? And so as we look at this, let me just tell you why this is so damaging to the body of Christ. Number one, if you're sitting in church and you saw this happen, what are, this, what are some of the conclusions you may come to? First, you might conclude that the rich man must be a better person than the poor man. 
The rich man must be a better person than the poor man. God must like rich people more, because after all, God blessed the rich person to give them everything that they have, and God must not like the poor person. And in fact, if anything, maybe there's something wrong with the poor person. Maybe the poor person is poor because he or she is living in sin, and that's part of the judgment of God. So let's see. God likes rich people. He doesn't like poor people. Because if he liked poor people, he'd make them rich people. So once he likes you, he'll make you go from poor to rich. Wow, that's interesting. And not only that, but you know what? This assembly of people likes rich people. So if I can become a rich person, they'll like me and accept me as one of them. So I need to do everything that I can to go from being poor to rich so I'll be accepted by this group of people. Isn't that interesting? And not only that, but I also know that in the world where I live, rich people get certain favors. Rich people are in leadership. So if I want to be in leadership in God's family, I've got to be a rich person. And just like in the world, I've got to make sure that I get people to vote for me. And I've got to go around shaking hands. And I've got to make sure that I, I grease their palm. And I've got to make sure I take the right people to lunch or buy them gifts or do whatever I have to do. Because I want to be a leader in the church. And so the only way I'll get to be a leader in church is how? Is if I know the right people. And they all sit and go, wow, so this is how God's program works. It's just like the world we live in. Okay, I understand. No, you don't understand, because what's going on is wrong before God. That's not how God's program works. Just because you are a leader in the world does not make you a leader in the church of God. And in fact, it's that kind of leadership that it creeps into the church that makes the church end up being nothing different than the world. Because God has a high standard for leadership, and it's all outlined in the book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. If you look at Titus, the leadership qualifications are very clear as far as God is concerned. And in no way, shape, or form does it have to do with how much money you make or what leadership position you have in the world. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be a leader in the world in your business and also a leader in the church. Not at all. If the qualifications exist, then praise God, that's wonderful. But if you're sitting here and you're watching all of this nonsense take place you will wrongly conclude that when it comes to the kingdom of God, that money talks. And if you're not a believer and you come to the assembly, then you'll wrongly conclude that if I donate money and they name a wing of the church building after me or the pews or the windows or something, that then God's pleased with me and when I die, I'm probably going to go to heaven. Why? Because I bought my way in. But that's not true at all, is it? There's only one way that any of us get into heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. And he bought our way when he shed his blood on the cross. And for those who believe, we are saved from the consequences of sin. And no amount of money in the world will ever gain us that status in the sight of God. Think about it for a minute. Everything you and I have has been given to us by God anyway. How can you buy your way into heaven with God's money? How stupid is that? Oh, which leads me to the word for the day. Say the secret word, and that is this, the stupidity of partiality. Let's just talk for a moment about the stupidity of partiality. Now, I realize when I use a word like stupidity, some of you immediately get offended. After all, stupid is as stupid does. That stupid is not a politically correct word today in an overly sensitive to everything but sin culture. Stupidity. 
But I've chosen this word for a very specific reason. Because stupidity defined is lacking ordinary activity of mind. That's a good definition. Lacking ordinary activity of mind. For the believer, the ordinary activity of mind should be what? Having the mind of Christ. And if you and I are not thinking like Jesus, as believers, then we are stupid. Because it lacks the ordinary activity of mind. For the believer, we should have the mind of Christ. We should think like Jesus thinks. We should see people as Jesus sees people. We should have an ordinary activity of mind, which is the mind of Jesus Christ. So I have chosen carefully the word stupid. Now perhaps a better word for the guilty of par- those guilty of partiality would be ignorant, which is having little or no knowledge and being unlearned. Now for the Christian that means either not knowing what the Bible teaches or deliberately ignoring what the Word of God has told us concerning partiality. And as a believer or a disciple who is open and teachable, one who wants to learn and have the knowledge of God, God, teach me what it is and how it is that you want me to treat others around me, then the question is, what must the believer ignore in order to continue in the sin of partiality? And as you'll see, the person who practices this sin is displaying a form of spiritual stupidity, or ignorance. So don't get hung up on the word stupid. If you resemble the remark, then confess it and learn from it. And if the reason you're offended is because you're guilty, then guess what? Don't use everybody else around here as an excuse. You ever notice how people, oh, I'm offended by that. Well, I know why you're offended, because you're stupid. <laughs> and, and, I, and the reason I say that is because you're not offended because of the person sitting next to you. Because if they're stupid, you know that already. So the only reason we ever get offended by anything is the areas where we're guilty. So get over this for a second. And let's get on to what God's trying to teach us. Number one, the reason that partiality or personal favoritism or racism or classism or culturalism or any of those things is stupid is because it does not resemble the mind of Christ. And it also is ignorant because it ignores a certain spiritual reality. Now look at verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2 of the book of James. It says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? And aren't they the ones who blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? He's saying there are certain spiritual realities that we need to recognize that are true. And one reason that partiality reveals spiritual ignorance is because it ignores the reality of what God is doing in the world. If you want to know where God is hanging out, you'll often find him hanging out with the poor, the outcast, the discriminated against, those who are despised by this world. God is doing his greatest work among such people. Now, don't get me wrong here for a second. There's nothing inherently spiritual about being part of a particular racial, economic, or ethnic class. Just being poor or outcast doesn't make you a saint. Belief in Jesus Christ is what takes you from an ain't to a saint. But on the other hand, the fact remains that God often chooses to do his work among the poor and despised. God uses the poverty of the poor to give them a richness of faith 
that, you know what, that a lot of affluent people simply don't have. And trust me, if you've ever been around people that have a lot of material possessions, one thing that you'll find about them as a group, and this isn't slamming rich people, so don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but those who have material possessions and those who have a lot of money in the bank and those who have a lot of assets tend to put their faith and trust in their stuff instead of in God. The poor don't have that as an option. Do you understand what I'm saying? The rich tend to believe that God is somehow their personal servant or valet. That they are not here to serve God, that God is here to serve them. And that is not true according to the word of God. We need to recognize and understand there are certain spiritual realities in here that are ignored because of this whole idea of putting our faith and trust in riches. Now, we can see the process at work in our own lives. I want you to stop and think about something for a second. This is where we've got to give that self-examination as we look into a mirror and the Word of God reflects where we really are. But is it not true that when you had nothing materially and you knew Christ then, you had nothing materially, you spent a whole lot more time on your knees talking to God than you do once everything started going your way? You spent a whole lot more time in the Word of God. You spent a whole lot more time going to church. You spent a whole lot more time praying. Oh, Lord, please meet our needs. Oh, Lord, you know we can't make the rent payment. Oh, Lord, you know where we're at here. And we spent a whole bunch of time talking to God. And then all of a sudden, God begins to bless us. And then you know what happens? God owned us more when we had nothing than when we had that which owns us now, which is not God, but the things that we want to possess. And if you don't think this is true, I want to just challenge you to think about something. We start to become blessed materially, and we go out and we buy a whole bunch of stuff. And all these blessings that we now purchase now own us. Because we have to continue to work to be able to meet that standard of living that we have set. If God wants us to do something, we don't have time to do anything for God. God, after all, you know how hard I have to work to maintain the standard of living that I have. So don't be asking me to do something for you because I don't have time to do it. And so we go out and we get the house and we get the cars and we get the multiple cars and we get the boats and we get the trailers and we get the condo in the desert and we get the house up in the mountains and we get all of this stuff. And you know what? And the people that I need to be sharing this with aren't even here. They're over at those places hanging out this weekend. <laughs> but in case you're a one, one out of four or two out of four or three out of four, I challenge you to consider something for a second. And that is this. Have the riches that God has blessed you with been the very thing that now keep you from the very presence of God? How ironic is that? One of the best things about owning, being a small business owner is that you never know what's happening next week. Tomorrow, next week, next month. And you don't even, you don't even start to think about next year. And one of the most wonderful things and the blessing that comes with that is, you know what, knowing that, that you're, you're in the hands of God. When we first started our business, we had no backlog, which means that we had no contract signed, which means we had nothing to look forward to, and, uh, other than going out and work and hope you get some of those things. So you go out and you realize, you know what, every phone call, when the, every time the phone rings, you go, praise the Lord, wow, phone call, hey, what is it, what do you want, a thermostat, no problem, great, this is great. You know, and, and it's like every call is like that, every meeting is like that, you want to meet with me? And you can't go... Really? Wow, I'll be there, you know, a certain time. You get all excited because you see God's hand in everything. 
Then all of a sudden you get a little bit of backlog, you got some contracts signed, you, can, you, you got six months worth of work, maybe 12 months worth of work, and all of a sudden, you know, the time that I spent with God, I don't spend as much time with Him anymore. Now it's like the phone rings, you go, oh God, why are you making the phone ring? And I know He's just looking at me like, you are so stupid, stupid, you're stupid. <laughs> and it's like, I am stupid. Because I don't have the mind of Christ when I act like that, when I don't see God's hand involved in my life. 1 Timothy 6 says those who want to get rich, even as believers, have even wandered from their very faith. Wow. Isn't that interesting? See, this blurred vision of forgetting all the blessings of God produces spiritual ignorance, doesn't it? It produces ignorance that we don't realize what it is that God is really doing, which is really fascinating to me because, you know, the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be a day when those who have never had nothing in this world from a material standpoint but they had Jesus Christ, will reap all the glory and all the benefits as heirs of the kingdom of God. Those people that were discriminated against because they had nothing that the world looks at as being valuable have the one thing that is valuable and only that, and that's a relationship with the God who made them by trusting in Jesus Christ. See, we need to ignore spiritual reality. Let me share with you a couple of stories, and I want to, I want, I want to share this with you so that you get a good understanding of how stupid the sin of partiality can cause us to think and cause us to act. Now, the first was sent to me by a friend who is black, and I want you to let this soak in. Here's what he sent me. He says, Chuck, thought you might enjoy this. He says, when I was born, I was black. When I grew up, I was black. When I am sick, I am black. When I go out in the sun, I am black. When I go out in the cold, I am black. And when I die, I am black. But you white folk, when you are born, you are pink. When you grow up, you are white. When you are sick, you turn green. When you go out in the sun, you get red. When you go out in the cold, you turn blue. When you die, you are purple. And you have the nerve to call me colored. You see how stupid we can be? Next story, true story. On a recent weekend in Atlantic City, a woman relates she had won a bucket full of quarters at a slot machine. She took a break from the slot for dinner with her husband in the hotel dining room, but first she would stash the quarters in her room. She told him, I'll be right back and we'll go to eat. And so she carried the coin-laden bucket to the bank of elevators, and as she was about to walk into the, an elevator, she noticed two men that were already on board. Both were black. One of them was very big, an intimidating figure. The woman froze. Her thought, first thought was, these two are going to rob me. Her next thought was, don't be stupid. They look like perfectly nice gentlemen, even if one of them is awfully black. But racial stereotypes are powerful and fear immobilized her. And she stood and stared at the two men. She felt anxious, flustered, and ashamed. But she hoped they didn't read her mind, but knew they surely did. Her hesitation about joining them in the elevator was all too obvious to everybody. Her face burned. She couldn't just stand there. So with a mighty effort of her will, she picked up one foot and stepped forward and followed the other foot and was on the elevator. Avoiding eye contact, she turned around stiffly, faced the elevator doors as they closed. A second passed and then another second, another second, and finally the elevator didn't move and panic consumed her. She thought, my God, I'm trapped and I'm about to be robbed. And her heart plummeted. Perspiration poured from every pore. Then one of the men said, hit the floor. Instinct told her, do what they tell you. The buckets... <laughs> 
The bucket of quarters flew upwards as she threw out her arms, collapsed on the elevator carpet. A shower of coins rained down upon her head. Take my money, spare me, she prayed. More seconds passed. Then she heard one of the men say politely, Ma'am, if you'll just, just tell us what floor you're going to, we'll push the button. The one, said, the one who said it had a, little tr- had a little trouble getting the words out. He was trying mightily to hold in his belly laugh. She lifted her head up and looked, down, looked up at the two men. They reached down to help her. Confused, she struggled to her feet. He said, ma'am, when I told my, my man here to hit the floor, um, I, I meant that he should hit the elevator button for our floor. I didn't mean that you should hit the floor, ma'am. <laughs> he bit his lip, holding back his laugh, and it was obvious he was having a hard time doing it. She thought, my God, what a spectacle I've made of myself. She was too humiliated to speak. She wanted to blurt out an apology, but her words failed her. How do you apologize to two perfectly respectable gentlemen for having, behaving as though they were going to rob you? And she didn't know what to do. The three of them gathered up the strong quarters, refilled her bucket. When the elevator arrived at her floor, they insisted on walking her to her room because she seemed a little unsteady on her feet and they were afraid that she might pass out going down the corridor. At her door, they bid her a good evening. As she slipped into her room, she could hear them laughing all the way back to the elevators. The woman brushed herself off, pulled herself together, went downstairs for dinner with her husband. Said the next morning, flowers were delivered to her room. A dozen roses attached to each rose was a crisp $1 bill. The card said, thanks for the best laugh I've had in years. It was signed, Eddie Murphy and Bodyguard. You know, we laugh because a story like that or stories like those exposes the stupidity and the ignorance of, in this case, racism. But you know, there's nothing funny about being repeatedly pulled over by police for no other reason than being a young black man driving an expensive car in a predominantly white area. And there's nothing funny about being held by mall security because the shoplifting suspect is a black female five foot eight inches tall, approximately 280 pounds, wearing purple pants with a dark top, and you're a black female, five feet four inches tall, weighing about 140 pounds, wearing a white dress, and shopping with your two sons. There's nothing funny about being a black man watching white women clutch their purses as you approach them in broad daylight at a retail center, knowing they think that because you're black, you obviously are going to rob them. As a white man, I can only imagine what that would be like to endure on a regular basis. The closest I've ever come to anything like that type of discrimination was on a trip that Linda and I were on to Italy. And we were in the Italian Alps, and unfortunately we happened to be there in a small country restaurant during a time of an international incident. Some of you may have recalled the incident of the Achille Laura, which was a cruise ship. It involved the United States and Italy. There was an Italian terrorist who took, took over the ship and took an American tourist, and they shot him and killed him and threw him overboard. And the United States at that particular point was fighting with the Italian government to extradite these two men to the United States to try them for murder. And unfortunately, we were there at that particular time, and the headlines of the local newspaper read very distinctly, Death to Americans. Now, as we sat in a restaurant... The owner and the staff wouldn't acknowledge our presence. They wouldn't come to our table. They wouldn't wait on us. And it was obvious that we were looking just a little too American considering the rest of the group that was there. And we finally had to get up and leave. And as we walked out, we looked back and could see the stares of everyone in the restaurant just watching us leave. 
Now, I've only been through that once in my life. Except if you go to France, that happens all the time. <laughs> but that sounds like nationalism, and that could be, I've got to get back deeper into the word here. But the point is, is that we need to recognize and understand something. That this type of partiality, personal favoritism, may happen in the world, but it should never, ever, ever happen in the family of God. It's time some of us grow up spiritually and stop such nonsense, stop being so stupid, and stop being so ignorant. Another evil that needs to be mentioned at this time is one that I prayed about and I, wanted to, I want to bring up at this moment because I think it's probably the greatest evil that perpetuates such stupidity and ignorance is that by those who try to link personal behavior choices and subsequent consequences to racial discrimination. And I'm speaking specifically the homosexual movement or homosexual agenda that somehow will link their choice of behavior and the subsequent consequences of such choices to the discrimination of racial groups that have occurred over the history of our nation. That is perhaps one of the most ignorant and stupid things you could ever do. And I'll tell you why that's the case. The chosen sin of homosexuality is just that. It is a choice made by man. The color of one's skin is the choice made by God. And God holds man accountable for man's choices, but he never holds us accountable for what he, God, chooses to do. And to link the two is ignorant and stupid. And we need to recognize that and understand that. There is such thing as discrimination towards those who choose certain behavior. If it wasn't true, we wouldn't have prison system. Do we discriminate against people who break the law? Absolutely. That's why we put them in jail. And if they say that's discrimination, then they don't understand. That's called judgment. It's judgment for actions. But when we take that same judgment and we apply it to ones because of one's color of their skin or their economic status or the accent in which they speak, then we are ignorant before God of sin. And that sin is a sin of partiality. Partiality also ignores the place of faith. Notice that. You notice he says very clearly, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Do you realize that there are those around the world who are taught, our Lord taught us in our Lord's Prayer, to give us this day our daily bread? That there are people all over the world who pray, Lord, today, please meet our needs. We don't have a refrigerator. We don't have a walk-in pantry. We don't have six months worth of groceries or three months or two months in the freezer and in the refrigerator and on the shelves or out in the garage. We've got to depend upon you today for our daily bread. And if we're going to eat today, it's going to be only because you have chosen to be gracious and to supply it for us. Partiality shows the ignorance of the place of faith and the purposes and the plans of God. You know, Hebrews 11 is filled with a, a, a chapter of faith with those who had nothing materially as far as the world was concerned. They had great faith in the provision of God. Let me go back to what I was talking about when you're sitting in an assembly and there's discrimination or prejudice against somebody who doesn't have any money versus that person who does have money. And I want you to listen very carefully, and that's the heresy of the prosperity gospel. We need to recognize and understand something. That is spiritual ignorance. 
If a person is told they are not blessed materially because they don't have enough faith in God, the person that's teaching that is either a deliberate liar or spiritually ignorant and stupid of the Word of God. The world is filled with people who are not blessed as we are in our Western culture, who are great men and women of faith who depend upon God for their very needs every moment of their life. They are people of great faith. God is not judging them because they have lack of faith. In fact, many of them have 50,000 more times the faith than any of us do who are blessed tremendously with physical things. I don't know about you, but when I'm in trouble, I want one of those people to be praying for me. Because they're the great prayer warriors of the world. They're the people that see God's hand in everything. They're not seeing God's hand in the backlog or in their stock or in their portfolio for retirement or in the house that they live in and the equity that they have and, and the capital gains they'll be able to say when they sell it and convert it all and liquidate and move somewhere else. They're not people that are depending on any of that stuff. Because they don't have any of it. And to say that somehow they are not as spiritual as people in the Western world is ignorance and stupidity. And we have got to be people as God blesses us who turn around and distribute the blessings of God and shower them upon people who need to see that, you know what, God loves them and wants to meet their every need. Not just physically, but spiritual as well. Jesus Christ met people's physical needs so they would be in a position to listen to his spiritual truth. When they were thirsty, he gave them something to drink. When they were hungry, he fed them. And once those needs were met, then they were willing to listen to spiritual truth. Buying a present for someone who lives in a hotel somewhere, and some of us are put off by things like that. God help us. We need to be people that distribute the wealth of God to people who are less fortunate than we are. Because you go, why have you blessed me so much, God? I'll tell you why. So you can share those blessings with someone else who can see the love of Christ in the act of giving to someone who cannot give back to you in any way, shape, or form. That's what we need to recognize. That's what we need to understand. That's what it's all about. And we need to realize what the Word teaches. And it also, in closing, ignores the priorities of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, we read this. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise among the, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should ever boast before God. For it's by grace we're saved through faith, and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God and not of our own works. Why? So that none of us can ever boast before God that somehow we earned the right to be in the presence of God in heaven for eternity. God says, no. It's by my grace, my grace alone, and faith that you're saved, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We need to recognize that God's priority system is what? He doesn't judge us by the external at all. In fact, when they were looking for a king to replace King Saul, and you can read it in 1 Samuel chapter 16, read it. And they paraded all these men before as they were going to select a king to take Saul's place. And one man walked in who was tall and dark and handsome and strong. And all of the crowd and the people said, Surely he's the one. And they said, No, he is not the one. And not because he couldn't have been the one, but because God has not done as man has done and judge people externally. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. 
but God looks at the heart. The priority of God is to examine each of our hearts. Do you realize God doesn't care what you look like on the outside? He doesn't get hung up on your skin color because it was his idea. He doesn't get hung up on the races because it was his idea. He doesn't get hung up on diversity because it was his idea. He doesn't get hung up on whether you have long hair or short hair, whether you're wearing shorts today or you've come in a $1,000 suit. He doesn't care if you're sitting in the front row or in the furthest seat in the balcony, unless, of course, you sat way back there because you wanted to rest. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about any of the things that we care about. He doesn't care whether you're young. He doesn't care whether you're old. He doesn't care whether you're rich. He doesn't care whether you're poor. He doesn't get hung up on any of those things. The only thing he cares about is, have you given your heart to my son, Jesus Christ? He doesn't get hung up on the external, but he looks at the heart of man. When he looks at your heart, what does he see? Does he see one who has given and surrendered your life to God and trusted in Jesus Christ? If he does, then he knows that you're a child of his to those who believe in his name. And he wants you to grow and he wants you to be like Jesus. And Jesus never got hung up on the external. In fact, he used to drive all the uppity-up people crazy at the people Jesus talked to. He'd go, man, they'd go, what are you talking to that person for? He's a friend of sinners. They accused him of being a friend of sinners? They accused him of speaking to women? Immoral women at that? The woman at the well? An immoral woman who had many husbands, seven in fact, and Jesus stopped and spoke to her, a Jew speaking to a Samaritan, and a woman nonetheless who's an immoral woman at that. Jesus spoke to her. Why? Because he saw her heart. She became a great evangelist. She went into town and told everybody that would listen about the Savior who knew everything about her. She couldn't wait to tell everybody about Jesus. He wasn't hung up on the external. He talked to the poor. He talked to sinners. He made contact with sinners without being contaminated. Isn't that wonderful? He loved people. And he wasn't hung up on the external. He wasn't put off by the handicap, physically or mentally. He touched them. He made them whole. Do you want to be more like Jesus? Stop getting hung up on what people look like and take time to get to know them and get to know their heart. And if you're guilty right now as you sit of the sin of partiality, whether it's racism, whether it's nationalism, whether it's classism, whether it's culturalism, then God calls you to repent. He calls you to confess your sin before God and say, God, I'm guilty. We had someone who was visiting our home, a relative, who was visiting from another state. And we were having a Bible study that particular night. And the doorbell rang and she went and she went to answer the door. And she came running back in the room and said, there's a big black guy at the door. I said, I know. It's, he's one of many big black guys that will be showing up tonight. We're having Bible study tonight. Did you open the door? I opened the door. Go open the door. You would have thought 
that it was like the hardest thing in the world to do. And I realized how, how insidious it is and how disgusting it is and what it must feel like to be on the other end of that. And I pray and I hope you pray that you never in your lifetime make any other human being feel that way in your presence. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I just pray that we will be obedient in every area. And as we come back to your word in a couple of weeks and we look at the solution to this problem, that we'll not be merely hearers of your word, but we'll be doers. God, we notice how stupid and ignorant we look when we think as a racist thinks, when we act as a racist acts. We act toward those who are different than us in any way that's not pleasing in your sight. God, help us to be more like Jesus and how we see others. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.